Seven. We began a new series last week. What does it mean to be born again? Why is that necessary? What, what is it? What does it even mean? And so last week from Ephesians 2, we looked at the nature of our problem, why it is that we must be born again. We looked at some of the things God accomplished in making us alive and some of the why, some of the motivation behind him making us alive. And so if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to to find the podcast, to access that from our website and catch up. And I'll give you a reminder that through this series, we're going to look at a different passage each week. And so we want to answer every question or address every aspect of what it means to be born again in any given week. But hopefully, over the course of several weeks, we'll build a complete picture of the Bible's teaching of what it means to be born again. So last week, it was one of Paul's letters. This week, it's one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. And I'm not sure how familiar you are with Ezekiel, but he's unusual. God has given to him some pretty strange visions, one of which that we'll look at today. But there's something about Ezekiel that we will see very clearly this morning, and it's true of the entire book. He is incredibly God-centered. He's very focused on the glory of God. And you'll see that well enough in a few moments as well. Let me give you a little background and a little bit of context before we read the passage. So Ezekiel was a prophet to Judah. And if you know your Old Testament history, and if you remember our time in Joshua recently, God brought his people into the promised land, the promised land that Michael was describing there from Numbers 34. It all ties together, folks. God gave them great victory. He allowed them to possess the land. The monarchy was established later. And so we have King Saul and David and Solomon. And that's the pinnacle. That's as good as it gets. And it goes downhill from there. And it goes downhill fast. One of the first things that happens is this kingdom, this monarchy splits in two. You've got ten tribes in Israel to the north, two tribes in Judah to the south. And they're each disobedient and idolatrous and unfaithful to the covenant that God made with them. And eventually it gets so bad that God sends Assyria to conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. And he sends the Babylonians to conquer Judah and to send them into exile. And so it is to Judah, in their Babylonian captivity, that God sends his messenger, Ezekiel. So we're going to look at two passages this morning from Ezekiel. And again, they're passages that I hope will help us understand and answer this question of what does it mean to be born again? Why is it needed? And what is it? So if you're able, I'd like to ask you to stand for the reading of the first of these two passages. We're just going to read the Ezekiel 36 passage to begin with. This is the word of God. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 16. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways 
and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries in accordance with their ways and their deeds. I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, in that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It's not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways. O house of Israel, this is the reading and we'll now have the teaching and the preaching of God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. O God, this word does have authority over our very lives. God, give us the humility to, to stand and to sit under its authority. And not to presume to stand above it. Show your authority. Show the truthfulness of this word. Show its usefulness. And oh God, show us Christ. Show us Christ that we might trust him more. That we might look to him and in looking to him give you the glory that you so deserve. Help us, we pray. We ask it in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. So if the new birth, if being born again is, is the solution, then let's make sure that we understand clearly the problem that it solves. Israel's problem is that they're in exile They've been removed 
from the land. And so just think a few weeks back to Joshua and what a very big deal it was for God's people to finally get into the land that he'd promised them. It was a very big deal to get in. And so it is a very tragic and catastrophic end to be removed. But you see, they had to be removed. Look at verse 17 from our passage. They defiled the land with their ways and with their deeds. They had become unclean. A few weeks back in our Trinity Together readings, we were slugging our way through Leviticus. And much was made there about ritual states of purity and impurity, of being clean, of being unclean. Whether or not you were fit to be in God's presence. And through Israel's sin and rebellion and idolatry, they had become unclean and unfit to dwell in God's land. And so they had to be removed from God's land. It was a moral obligation on God's part. He had said, this is what would happen if they continued in their unfaithfulness, if they continued in their idolatry, which they did, so they had to be removed. Look at verses 18 and 19. So I poured out my wrath. I scattered them among the nations. I judged them. So it's a huge problem for God's people, but it turns out it's not just a problem for God's people, it's also a problem for God. If there could be a catch-22 for God, it's this. He must remove them from the land. He said he was going to. But when he does, his name takes a big hit. Look at verse 20. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. Not actively. They weren't actively cursing God's name. But it's their very presence among these scattered nations. And the people said of them, wait a minute, aren't, aren't these the people of, of the Lord, of, of, of Yahweh, the God of the Israelites? Well, they had to go out of his land. What's up with that? What kind of a God is that? He's got a land, but it's empty. Where are his people? It's, it's important that we put ourselves a little bit in the mindset of folks from this time and from this culture, which is incredibly polytheistic. Right? They're just gods everywhere. There's a God for everything, and every nation has its own set of gods. And so with the defeat of a nation in this time, it was seen to be a defeat of that nation's gods. So this does not look good for Yahweh. What, what a weak and unimportant God he must be. If his own land is empty, if his people were conquered and carried away by a stronger nation, presumably with stronger gods. And so, of course, our God cannot and will not stand for this. 
See verses 21 and 23. It says, I had concern for my holy name. And here's one of those few times when I think the King James did a better job. King James says, I had pity on my name. I saw the situation unfolding. I saw what was happening. And I had pity for my name. I had compassion on my name because of what this had done. Verse 23, he says, I will vindicate the holiness of my name. So we need to keep two questions up and running in the back of our minds as we go through this. Number one is, is what does God do? What does God do in this situation? What does God do in the new birth? What does God do in causing us to be born again? But also, why does he do it? What is his motivation? And Ezekiel is going to make it very easy to answer this second question. Shockingly easy, offensively easy. If, If part of you is not offended this morning at seeing God's motivation for doing what he does, if you're not offended at that, you're either not paying attention or you're lying. Verse 22. It is not for your sake that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. That's the reason God is doing what he's doing. And I'm just going to let that hang there and make us uncomfortable. I'm not going to address it yet because God, through Ezekiel, is going to throw it back in our face again at the end of the passage. So if that's part of the intro to why he's doing what he's doing, now let's dig into what is he doing. What is he doing here in this passage? What is he doing in the new birth? What is he doing when he causes us to be born again? We've got a great picture here in this passage. Here he is restoring Israel. And in that he's doing several things. Let's start in verse 24. So right off the bat, he's addressing the big problem. His people have got to get back into his land. Out of captivity and into the land. In a real sense, this is a second exodus, and it's a second entering of the promised land that we saw so clearly in in Joshua. And we might be tempted to breathe a big sigh of relief and say, whew, glad that problem is solved. They're back in the land. And it would certainly be a help to God's name and to his reputation to see his people, rather than being scattered everywhere, and his land empty, get them back to the land. That would certainly help from appearance's sake, but it doesn't fix things in God's eyes. Because his people are still unclean. They're still unfit for dwelling in his land. They've rebelled. They've worshipped every idol under the sun. And therefore we need verse 25. In the sprinkling of clean water being cleansed from all your uncleannesses. See, folks, they've got to be cleansed. They need to be made pure. They need to be made fit again to dwell in his presence. 
So now we can say, oh, great. Back in the land. We got a clean slate. What more could you ask for? Well, not to be a glass half empty kind of guy, but Israel's got a track record. And it's not a good track record. See, they've got a record for being given second and third and 43rd chances to try again. And they don't exactly excel with the redos. So the thought of being back in the land and with a clean slate is nice, but what's going to happen? What's going to happen? It'll, it'll be the same old, same old. Last week in Ephesians 2, I talked about the fact that our problem isn't just the bad stuff that we do. The, the problem is not our rap sheet. The problem is our nature. The problem is not ultimately our sins. The problem is that we are sinners. It's who we are. And the only solution to that problem is that we be changed. Not our situation, not our surroundings. It's that we be changed. It's that our very nature is transformed. And so now we've got to come to verse 26. We've got to have a new heart. We've got to have a new spirit. We've got to be made new from the inside out. Because what did the old heart and the old spirit do but produce a long trail of idolatry and rebellion? And so here God promises a heart transplant. The old, hard, stony heart, stubborn, insensitive, unresponsive, rebellious, removed. And a brand new heart, a soft heart, a responsive heart in its place. And it's not just any new spirit. Verse 27 says, I'm going to put my spirit in you. I'm going to put my spirit in you and look at the result that happens there in verse 27. The result of this heart transplant, the result of the implanting and the imparting of his spirit is the enabling of the right response. Y'all, that's at the core of being born again. The enabling of the right response. The picture from last week's text, from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, that, that picture was that we were dead. 
And so Ezekiel's giving us a, a slightly different twist on that, and it doesn't in any way contradict. It just helps us see a different aspect. Here Ezekiel's saying, it's your heart. It is the core of your very existence, the seat of your will and your emotions. It's hard. It won't respond. It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel remorse or sorrow for our sin. It's stubborn and it is unapologetically stuck in rebellion. And y'all, a heart like that can't just be renovated. It can't be remodeled. It's got to be raised, removed, replaced. And God does this. He replaces it with a new heart, one that's able to respond. He enables the right response to walk and to obey. And friends, this is a beautiful picture of gospel transformation. Once you see this, this is God's grace. God enables the fulfillment of the covenant obligations that he sets in place. So think about this covenant. He says, I'm making a covenant with you. Here are covenant obligations that you must fulfill. Here are covenant curses if you don't. And now here comes the grace needed to fulfill the very obligations that he laid down in front of you. God's grace gives what God's law requires. So the passage goes on to describe, as we read earlier, how thorough and abundant this restoration is. Brought back into the land, cleansed, enabled to respond with a new heart and spirit, and provided for with with plenty, with abundance. And then the passage closes the same way it began in verse 32. It's not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. See, just in case we were confused, in case we had forgotten, all these great things I'm doing for you, they're not about you. They're about me. They're about my name and my glory. Now, doesn't that just rub you the wrong way? It just seems wrong on some level to be so concerned for your own glory. To be so consumed with your own reputation. I read some powerful words this week in in one of the commentaries that I used. It's a guy named Ian Duggid. And it's kind of a long quote. So don't try to write, just take it in right now. I'm probably going to print it in the 242 thing tonight. God's exclusive concern with his own name and glory may seem offensively self-absorbed to contemporary readers. We are used to beginning our theological reflection from below 
and celebrating the God who is for us, right? And so we do this naturally in our, in our speech, in our praying especially. We do this naturally. We're starting from below. We're thinking about God and we're, we're, we're thanking him. Oh, thank you, God. You're so good to me. Thank you for all that you've blessed me with. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for me. And so that's our vantage point. It's very natural. And it's very healthy as part of what we're doing. He continues. But God is only for us because it brings glory to himself. Moreover, such self-absorption is as great a virtue in God as it is a flaw in human beings. For God to delight in his own perfections is entirely appropriate since there is no one and nothing greater in which he can delight. To delight in anything less than himself would be idolatry just as surely as it is idolatry for us as creatures to delight in anything less than our great creator sanctifying his great name, exalting God above all things is the only task fit for God himself and for humankind whom he has created in his image. I get that it's offensive on its surface when we first brush up against it. It busts up some categories in our minds. But if it is offensive to us, it just means our God isn't big enough. Because if we saw him as he really was, it would make absolute perfect sense. How could he not be consumed with his own glory? Be consumed with the glory and the fame of his name? Now, why is this important in in light of being born again? Why would God interject this focus on his own glory in describing getting a new heart and getting a new spirit? You see, he does this good to us and, and for us. He, he removes the dead stony heart. He gives us his spirit. But he's got to remind us, you know, it, it's not ultimately about you. Right? It's definitely not because you deserved it. It's, not definitely, it's definitely not because you were worth it. He does this good to us and for us first and foremost because it brings him glory. It highlights his mercy and grace to stoop down to the lowly and and to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. And so it's in this great plan of his that he does vindicate the holiness of his name. Because get this, he's not just winking at sin and saying, oh, that's okay. Like a, a senile grandfather, I think that's Lewis's words. He's not failing to make good on those promises of wrath and destruction for covenant breakers. 
He absolutely makes good on those promises. He just changes the recipient of who gets the wrath and destruction. And he becomes a man and he takes on flesh. And he pours them out on himself. God the Son drinks the cup of the Father's wrath down to the dregs. And we so want to make it about us. We want, you know, we sing schmaltzy songs and things that, you know, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. And okay. You know, in all this language of Jesus dying for me, first and foremost, Jesus died for the Father's glory. Now, do we benefit? You bet we do. Do we receive blessing because of that? You bet we do. But that doesn't for a minute make us the point. And so as we think about being born again, as we think about our salvation, it's crucial that we see His glory as the reason to see His glory as the reason for Him doing all that He does so that His glory might become the reason for all that we do. That we'll begin to see His glory as the reason and the guiding factor for everything else we do in our homes, on our jobs, even in our worship. This isn't for us. This is for his glory. Do we benefit from it? You bet we do. Are we the point? Not for a minute. All right. We've looked at some of the what God did and a bit of the why that he has done and is doing what he does. So I want to close with this other passage. I want to look again at the when that he does it. We did this last week in Ephesians 2. When does God do this miraculous work of the new birth? Is it once we start to show some interest? Is it when we begin to show a little warmth toward God, toward his ways, toward his laws? Is it when God sees some signs of life and he says, Ah, there's somebody with promise. There's somebody I can work with. Not exactly. Ezekiel 37, remain seated. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Oh, Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, 
I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews upon them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. So just in case you missed the sovereign, powerful action of God in 36, and the emphatic, I will remove their heart of stone. I will put my spirit within them. In case you missed that, we have this picture to drive the point home. Lest you thought for a moment that our being born again was somehow God's response to our pleas for help, here's a picture for you. And it's a picture that ought to do a number on us. It's a picture that ought to do a number on even some of the songs that we sing. Or that we don't sing, right? I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry. From the waters lifted me, my sinner found. We have a glorious picture here, not of sinking, And a despairing cry for help. We've got a picture of being dead and having sunk to the bottom. That's what we have a picture of. That's the win of this new heart transplant and spirit implantation. It's not anything we can ask for. We're we're, we're dead. These bones in this picture, they aren't even skeletons anymore. They're not even connected. These bones are dry. They've been picked clean and baked in the sun. And it's at that point. It's in that moment of hopelessness. It's in that moment when it seems so pointless. Right? God's question to Ezekiel is just absurd. Can these bones live? Like, I feel embarrassed for Ezekiel, and I sense some some embarrassment even in his answer. Oh, oh Lord. Like, he can't even tell him no. He's too, Lord, you know. But then, at that point, the powerful Word of God and the Spirit of God brings life. 
it, it's a picture of, of being recreated, right? There are echoes here of Genesis 2, right, of being formed and then having God breathe life into your very nostrils. That's what we've got a picture of here. So with this graphic image in our minds, let's put all this together, right? This is the wind. This is the wind. Dead, dry bones, picked clean. No possibility of response. And what does God do? He brings new life, a new heart, his spirit, thereby enabling our response to him. And why does he do it? For his own glory. For the sake of his great name. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that we would be offended. I pray that we would be offended by your relentless pursuit of your own glory and that we would also be corrected in our offense. That you would reveal yourself in your greatness. That you would allow us to glimpse as much as we are able without becoming undone to see your glory, to see your holiness, to see your worth. And Lord, may we see that as the driving motivation, even for our very salvation. And by your grace, may you take that and make that our motivation. For every step that we take, every move that we make, that they would be more and more for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand. Let's sing in response.